Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to frito to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Three mistakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Hello and welcome to episode 80 of the Motor City Hoops podcast. If you are new to the Motor City Hoops podcast, I'm your host, Bryce Simon, a former D1 Hooper, current teacher, coach, husband, father of three amazing kids, and contributor to Detroit Bad Boys of SB Nation. Before I introduce our guest for today, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to episode 77 with Omari Sankofa, Pistons beat writer for the Detroit Free Press. Also, I have dropped new breakdowns on Detroit Bad Boys, looking at Luca Garza and Sadiq Bey, and a collaboration with friend Matt Issa, who will join us next week on basketballnews.com looking at Cade Cunningham. I also want to encourage you to give us a follow on Twitter at Motor City Hoops and subscribe to the YouTube channel so you never miss an episode or video breakdown. But on today's episode, we have a great guest, the perfect guest to talk about the Pistons and the X's and O's of the game, the founder of Basketball Immersion, the basketball podcast, and Immersion Videos, an amazing follow. You better be following him by the end of the episode on Twitter, a basketball trainer, mentor, and coach, Chris Oliver. Chris, welcome to Motor City Hoops, and thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me on, Bryce. Grateful to be here and grateful to be able to share the game with you. Absolutely. I'm excited for this one. I know we're going to have a lot of fun. I know the listeners are going to learn a lot, and I have a feeling me and Wes are going to learn a lot as well, because on today's episode, we'll get Chris's thoughts on this Pistons team and the storylines around it, and then dive into what we're really here for, which is the X's and O's of the Pistons and the NBA at large. We will finish off the episode like we do every episode, playing Sheet or Sham. So before we get into offensive schemes, drop coverage, ghost screens, and more, let's talk Pistons. Chris, I just want to get your thoughts on Troy Weaver and what he's building, kind of the plan and the vision. Again, I know you don't follow the Pistons exclusively or anything like that, but just from afar and then when you've talked to the people you know in the NBA and around the game, what do they have to say? What have you seen about his team building, his roster building thus far early in his tenure? Well, the Pistons have always been one of my favorite watches, so we've definitely watched them a lot here uh, with my two daughters and my wife as well. And being a former college coach at the University of Windsor, right across the border from Detroit, I got a chance to know a lot of uh, a lot of the coaches and uh, get a, get really an inside access to some of the things that they did. Now, a lot of the rosters turned over, a lot of the coaches have turned over, but uh, my takeaway from just watching them and uh, from talking to some of my clients in the NBA is that the roster is definitely upgraded. I mean, tremendous youth movement, some real quality players. You know, the challenge is obviously outside of Cade, who's an elite player. And there's potential and certainly some players over the stretch here, including, you know, the big win versus the Bucks, have shown potential to be able to obviously improve and develop and, uh, you know, add to a championship roster down the road. But, you know, right now, I think that's the biggest question is what are the complementary pieces that they're going to be able to add 
to, you know, add some elite talent to the roster. And, you know, no, no secret to you, particularly around shooting and, uh, you know, rim runner, rim roller and uh, defensive presence at the rim. So you brought up the team building and the players, they still have to bring in talent. And there's no doubt about that. So as a former college coach, you kind of know this. How important is it to have a culture and kind of a vision for what your team to look like and to acquire players and pieces that fit that culture? Like as a college coach, how did you do that? And how important was it to find those right, those right pieces and those right players? Well, it's challenging at any level to find the right pieces. And, uh, you know, you do your best and certainly at the NBA level with all the resources they have, they do great diligence in trying to find pieces that fit. But as you know, it's still a hit or miss league to a certain extent, and especially with young players. But, you know, you're starting from a foundation of Kate Cunningham. And when I look at a player like that, I go, okay, well, with his versatility, his flexibility, it's much easier to fit pieces in with him. And I think that's a real positive in terms of building a culture and moving forward. You know, the second thing I would say is just in terms of the roster and how they played, I know, you know, every team's facing some, you know, roster challenges with COVID and, uh, you know, the protocols and, you know, injuries and all the different things that affected the Pistons as well. But I think it's been really promising in this stretch, just watching how the players have have played together with different rosters in place and certainly without some of their more veteran players in the roster playing as well. So I think moving forward, that's what you hope drives the culture is the success they've had during this stretch and particularly with these young players. Yeah, I mean, I think you hope that means there's a culture that's resonated through the entire organization, even down to the G League, which this organization talks a lot about. And then when you bring those G League guys up from the Motor City Crews, they're able, I mean, they don't fit in like perfectly, but you know, they know what's expected. They know the offense, the defense, those schemes that we're going to talk about a little bit later. But we talked about Cade Cunningham. You've mentioned him a couple times now. In your mind, Chris, what you've seen from Cade, probably going back to high school, maybe even, but through college so far in his rookie year, is this a guy who you can really build your franchise around who every move you make essentially every move you make is with him in mind of does this fit with Cade is this guy going to work with Cade does this enhance Cade's ceiling and where he can take this organization well two things one DJ Baker who's coaching the G League team uh, someone I know really well and uh, you know just the focus on development the fact that he's at that in the G League and he's coaching that team, you know, just again is laying a great foundation. You said culture from the top down. I think that was a huge, huge hire. And he just does a great job in developing players and uh, working with players. So that, that at that foundation level of trying to build players, you know, whether they're two ways or whether they're future players on the roster, you know, that's there. The other thing you talked about Cade, I had a chance to have Mike Boyton, his college coach on the basketball podcast. And it was just amazing to listen to him talk about a player like that. And just a little bit surprising, I think, you know, some of the talent that maybe I didn't see from watching, you know, one or two games. And I think we're seeing that because obviously over so many games at the NBA level, you're just seeing him flash different things. Now, the challenge is obviously consistency. And, uh, you know, but I think we've seen enough from him in terms of, as I said, his versatility, his ability to be able to make the right play, even if the right outcome doesn't happen. And by the way, that's one of the hardest things for fans, I think, to evaluate. And I think it's a challenge for coaches to be able to look, take a step back and say, okay, he's making the right plays, even though it the decision doesn't always lead to a made basket or it doesn't lead to a positive shot quality outcome. So there's different things like that that you look for as a coach and you go, okay, 
if he keeps doing this and he keeps developing that consistency to be able to bring all these versatile skill sets together, then he's going to be an elite player. And I really do feel that he just has a feel for the game and a caginess about him that uh, is going to allow him to be able to compete at the highest level. And again, allow him to fit in with almost any player that you bring in on the roster. And isn't that such, such an elite thing to be able to have someone that can be an elite player and also fit in with almost any player? Yeah, that's what I love about his game is I feel like he is so flexible. He can go get you buckets when you need buckets. He can get everybody involved when he needs to get them involved. I think his, I don't think he's necessarily a really good defender yet, but I think his energy and his intensity on that end of the floor, he wants to be a good defender. We've seen him dive on the floor, those type of things. I do want to speak to a quick point. Yeah. Uh, we try to teach our high school kids all the time. Just because the other team missed the shot doesn't mean we played good defense on that possession. They may just have missed the shot. And the same thing, just because we made a shot doesn't always mean that we ran good offense. And so when I do my breakdowns, I try to highlight some of that stuff as well. That, you know, that's why assist is such a hard stat because Cade may be riking, making the right play, but his teammates just not making a shot. But I, I, since you got a chance to talk to Mike Boyne, I, I, I have to ask, did he talk about Cade's intangibles? What because that may be the thing that's impressed me the most from day one with Cade Cunningham and the listeners have heard me talk about it so I'm not going to go through it as in depth but endearing himself to the organization the city the fan base even after games with fans all that stuff did, did Boyton talk about any of those type of things when you had the chance to discuss Cade with him absolutely uh, just going back to you evaluate decisions independent of outcome you talked about you know shot quality um, Simon Gersberg, who runs shotquality.com, actually sent me some stats in preparing for this. And here's an example for from the Pistons is in terms of three-point shot quality stats, they generate the third most catch-and-shoot threes in the NBA, and they're 10th in the percentage of threes that are open. So wow. to, to, to me, that's a positive, right? But yeah. we look at it from a fan's perspective and we go make or miss, right? But from a coach's perspective or someone who's evaluating like Troy Weaver, we're going, okay, listen. We are generating really positive outcomes in terms of our decisions that are leading to three-point shots. We're not making them. So obviously that drives decisions for him and says we need more shooting. And I'm and, and we're forecasting way beyond where your question was, but obviously that's got to be a big part of what they're thinking moving forward. And I'll share a few other things like that as we go forward. But in terms of Mike Boyton, I mean, number one, we, we undervalue sometimes the likability factor for an elite player. Like an elite player who's also likable, you know, not just in terms of the fan base, but in terms of his teammates, the organization, the people around him. I mean, that's a big thing. And that's really what Mike Boyton drove home in terms of Cade is talking about that factor that there wasn't anyone within the organization, within the facility, within, you know, Oklahoma State that had anything bad to say about him. The other thing I'll say is that one of the things that uh, Mike Boyton did with him is that he posted him up a lot. And, you know, for, for kind of an elite player that has an NBA focus, potential number one draft pick, to be able to kind of have him buy into that instead of, say, showcasing his perimeter skills and the way he'd potentially be used at the NBA is also such an impressive thing that I think, again, drives home the fact that this guy has character beyond just, you know, the simple basketball. And he's just a great person, quality person who has this opportunity to be able to be special because he has that combined with great talent. Yeah, and we've seen some of that post-up stuff. And and actually, the fan base is, has 
ask for more of it. And I don't know, like we haven't seen him in true post situations, but you've seen him turn like a drive to the basket and then turns his back. Or maybe he drives along the baseline and then turns it into a quick little post up. And like the, I call it a baby hook. I don't know if that's still the lingo anymore, but you know, a little baby hook over his left shoulder. And it looks really nice. And I do think that's going to be a nice part of his game as he gets stronger and moves forward. And and I, I could talk to you about Cade for the next 30 minutes, but I know we have other topics. So I want to transition into Hamadou Diallo because he's one of those guys that's played well, really well during the stretch that you alluded to with the COVID issues and all of that. And we talked a little bit before we recorded about the the coach's decision to not play him early in the season and what kind of message. So you as a coach, can you just explain to our listeners as a coach that's coached at a very high level, that's been around these guys at a very high level, what can you say, what kind of message, what kind of motivation can you use by sitting a guy like Hamadou Diallo for five games? Or maybe what are you trying to get out of him? What are you, what's the purpose of something like that? Well, it, it speaks again to the culture piece that you talked about, but also, you know, any coach or any organization is going to have expectations. And look, there's obviously a leeway. There's a leash that exists with everything that, you know, we talk about in coaching. And there's no necessarily hard, fast rule. And I think rules are something that are somewhat out the window. Because the problem with when you have a rule and you say, hey, if so-and-so does this, then this happens. You know, this consequence happens. The problem with that is obviously you have to always enforce it. So I think coaches don't talk about rules as much as they talk about expectations. So expectations give players a little bit longer a little bit more freedom to be able to play outside of, say, what is, you know, just this narrow, narrow rule. So what I'm thinking probably happened, and I've been in this situation before, is, you know, Coach Casey and the organization had expectations for him. At some point, he, you know, went well beyond, you know, kind of what they wanted him to do, whether it's his role or the way he acted and, you know, or his work ethic or, you know, there's so many factors that we don't know what they were, but it gets to a point where they have to make a decision. And it's not just necessarily about Diallo, it's about the organization and it's about all those other young players. So if you think about a coach's decision and you look at it just from that perspective, oh, you're crazy, you're sitting this guy who has this great potential. Okay, fans have a right to be able to say, okay, question that. But if you look at look at it from not a micro level, but a macro level, and you say, okay, I've got to hold this whole organization and this whole developing young roster to these expectations, to these core values that we put in place. So sometimes doing these things are a bigger picture than we can see from the outside. And I think that's generally the perspective that most coaches would have is that sometimes decisions are driven beyond just that individual player. And they're driven for the benefit of the whole team and the whole organization. And clearly, again, we don't know the reason necessarily at the end of the day, you know, the real reason. But, you know, to be able to do that and be able to have a player like that respond eventually this way, that sends a great message to the whole core. And not just this year, but beyond this year, when people like Cade can relate that story to future players that come in and say, hey, listen, this happened to so-and-so. But look at what he did, you know, and you hope that drives the culture moving forward. So I look at that as a positive and I look at that as an opportunity. And clearly, you know, I mean, Diallo has looked at that as an opportunity. He's playing great basketball. Yeah, absolutely. He's definitely taking advantage of it. Credit to him. But I I like to also give credit to Casey. And like you say, the organization. And I loved how you talked about not judging things or looking at things because it's easy as fans. We even as a podcaster, it's it's kind of my thing. We're always, you know, our thing. I shouldn't, you know 
to look at singular moves because that's what content is. But really, it's we, we have to look at the big picture, and it, it really is tough to jar, judge those singular moves, you know, even from a coach or, or a GM. I've even said that with Troy Weaver that, yeah, he may make some mistakes or what we think are mistakes along the way, but it's really about the larger picture, and that's only really only those guys get to see those type of things. And that's what is kind of tough as fans at, at times. And like you said, and Hami has really done a great job responding, and I, I'm excited to see how he can continues to play but I want to transition now to the other player who's really taken advantage of some extra usage some minutes and really found his shot lately and his game overall and that's Sadiq Bey first I just want to ask you about the shot I don't know how much you've watched Sadiq Bey shoot or really broken it down or anything like that Uh, to me he has a little bit of a flat shot he kind of kicks his leg out Anything you've seen when watching Sadiq Bey shoot that you have any long-term sustainable issues with his just catch-and-shoot jumper? Yes, absolutely. And by the way, this is one of the players that I really enjoyed watching last year. So I get it from people's perspectives that sometimes you see this this regression almost in the second year. But uh, you know, it, it, to a certain extent, it's because he had such a great first year. So I think we have to look at it that way. The other part is, like, where is he on an opponent's scouting report now? Right, relative to when he first came into the league. And that's the thing. If you look at someone's scouting report, they go, okay, these are the top three players. Then these are the next three we have to worry about. Then the next three, you know, suddenly Sadiq Bey coming into this year is in one of the top three, right? Whereas last year, for a lot of his games, he wasn't in those top three in terms of opponent concerns and opponent focus. So those things have an impact on all of the development that goes into a player, not just is he making or missing shots and what's wrong with his shot. So those things are a part of it. And as I said earlier, I alluded to some of the stats about the quality. You know, they're getting open shots. So the question is, is there a technical flaw? Is there something? Well, you know, certainly in talking to some scouts and NBA assistants that I know on other teams, I mean, some people seem to suggest that maybe he had a little bit of an upper body twist, you know, that his legs were kicking, the different things that you talked about. Yeah, maybe that's all a part of it. I would go to something and, and maybe challenge people to think even a little bit beyond that and go, Well, how about he was just so focused on trying to develop a different part of his game and maybe his offseason was so devoted to developing this other part of his game beyond three-point shooting that he lost some of his sharpness within his three-point shooting. And to be honest, development's not linear. It's non-linear. It's never this perfect arc. So a player like Bay may have gone into this offseason really focused on developing some things that him and the team wanted him to develop, but that didn't necessarily help him you know, sustain some of the shooting early in the year. And you're seeing that, you know, now over the last stretch of games and you would know better than I, but, you know, he shot it really well. And, uh, you know, he he is a long-term, you know, I would definitely say that he's a fixture on a potential championship team moving forward. Okay, so you brought up the perfect transition, Chris, because that what he, how he spent his offseason was a huge topic of conversation for the fan base. You know, last year he was kind of looked at as this really good 3 and D guy, and then he came in this year and, you know, Coach Casey and the organization is talking about him with the ball in his hands and being a little bit more of a creator and attacking the basket, three-level scoring, all that stuff. You know, I've made the argument, or I shouldn't say argument, my opinion is I'm fine with Sadiq spending the offseason trying to make make a more all-around game, and then going into the season and seeing what it was. After 20, 25 games where it didn't look very good, then I was okay with him going back into the role he's in now. You are a guy that trains players at a very high level. What is your thought on that? Do you think it was a good decision for Sadiq Bey to do that? And at what point does a player just say, I'm going to perfect my role and stop trying to expand it? 
Well, I, I think that's a gradual process for sure. Uh, and, and players are smart and, and the people around him are smart. Like at the end of the day, what is going to sustain his success in the league and what's going to get him paid long term in this league? And, uh, you know, he established that really quickly in his first year. So I think that gave him a platform and the Pistons a platform to be able to challenge him and challenge themselves to see if he can do more. And I think that's natural. And and that's the hard thing when you're evaluating a young roster like this and a young team. I mean, it's that balance between development and winning. And if we're really focused on winning, then we want him to just do what he does, right? And never develop. But, you know, this roster should be about development. You know, yes, we'd like to win games and having a winning culture and opportunities to win big games like they've done, you know, during this stretch. Those are all such an important part of driving development and driving culture. But at the end of the day, how can we get more out of these players so that when we are ready for the playoffs and when we're ready for that next step, that they're able to do a few more things? So, you know, that, that's obviously a process that takes time and it's hard sometimes for fans because we want them to just do what they do because it led to success. Well, sometimes players have this regression because they're trying to get better within the role, but also within the possibilities beyond the role. And that's such a huge thing. And I think generally coaches embrace that to a certain extent for young players uh, who have established themselves, but you know, it comes a certain time and whether it's next year or the year after that he's going to be more solid in his role, whatever that's going to be. So we've talked a lot about culture, but I want to just stick to the two things you talked about winning versus development. Cause I think the Pistons are in a really interesting spot right now with what Weaver and we call the restoration, not a rebuild. And that is the balance of those two things. And, and I want to ask you first, as a coach, have you been in this situation where you had to make that decision? Maybe you had a young team in college because of an injury or the way recruiting or graduations or an unexpected transfer. Have you been in a situation where you've had to make that decision on yeah, maybe we lose a couple extra games, but it's for the development of these younger guys? Or did you go the other way and said, yeah, we're going to play this way because we need to win some games, but it may not be what's best for the long-term development of the program. Have you been in that situation? And how did you decide what the balance was? I've, I've been in every situation you just said. So it's absolutely, I mean, I think any coach that's coached for a long time has been in those situations. And I've been in that situation within the middle of a season where suddenly you had an injury or you had a player, you know, as you said, transfer out or you had different things happen. So, you know, th- those are things that you have to decide. Now, I, I will say this as a coach, you know, I coached college for 18 years. I, I never coached a game that I wasn't trying to win. And I think that's genuine. Like, I don't think there's any situation here with Coach Casey or, or, you know, Troy Weaver, the organization isn't trying to win. They're trying to win. But at the same time, I think what drives all of their focus right now is the future. And how can we build these winning habits, this winning culture and develop these players that is going to drive long term success? So, you know, to me, that's what I think they mean. You know, it's not a rebuild, it's it's a restoration because they're saying that we still want to have a winning culture and a winning, you know, effort every single night. And I think that's a danger when you get lumped into obviously saying, hey, listen, we're just going to play young guys and take our lumps. You know, they they surrounded them with some veterans, you know, some really pros, you know, obviously Kelly, Elena, Corey Joseph, guys like that, whether they're playing or not playing, those are pros and they played with great teams They've been around great organizations. So surrounding players with those type of people obviously helps drive development as well. So I think that's the balance that goes with all of this. 
So I want to transition. I'm going to change the outline a little bit. I want to transition right into the defense. And and we're going to look, and I want to talk just specifically about Dwayne Casey and the Pistons scheme and kind of what they do on both ends of the floor. But I want to start with the defense because I think it transitions well into, I think we're seeing a very aggressive scheme on the defensive end from the Pistons. I think they play high in the passing lanes, ball pressure. We've seen them trap ball screens recently. They've even employed like a a one-two-two half-court trap or three-quarter court press. I guess, after free throws. And I, I don't think it's overly effective right now because we don't, the Pistons don't have a rim protector. I don't think some of their perimeter pieces are really ready to get up and guard like that. But if it's about the development and what future success and that that's the way they'll have to play in the future, I understand it. You know, the, the, what you've seen and the people you've talked to, is that the scheme they're going for? Is that the plan in place for the defensive side of the ball for the Pistons? Well, again, I'm no expert on what they're doing behind the scenes, but, you know, I will say this, you know, for Coach Casey, there's a little bit of freedom and I think it's a fun time to coach for him. Um, And I don't mean that frivolously. I just mean that because he has this type of roster and then he has this opportunity to build, develop players and there's less pressure somewhat on the day to day win and it's focused on long term that he has some freedom to be able to try some things. So I'm sure what him and his staff are doing is they're trying certain things over a period of games, and then they're evaluating its impact. And from there, that'll drive decisions for the future roster, not just for this season, but for beyond that. Hey, what 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 kind of system can Cade excel in? What kind of system can you know all of these guys play in that's going to help them be successful? You know, I think the other part that goes with that, if I if I was thinking about this from a, you know a real again macro perspective. You know, long term, I'd probably be more focused on half court offense. And you reference people wanting Cade to post up more. But I'm like, from a development perspective, we already know he can post up, you know, and we saw it in college. We they've probably seen the proof in practice. So they're focused on what's going to help him develop most long term. And that would be getting better at ball screen and ball screen decision making and using using those type of tools. So to me. You know, those are the challenges when you think about and evaluating it from the outside. You're just going, okay, you know, short term, posting up Cade helps us win more. Long term, man, this guy really needs to get better at using ball screens in his decision making when he draws two off of ball screens, getting to shoulders, different things like that. And if I think about system play, we go, okay, long term, half court offense, because we know in the playoffs, half court offense, you know, and they're a good transition team now who has a chance to be a really good transition team. And I know a lot of people want them to run more. And I get that because that would drive more success and more opportunities and whatnot. But to win in the playoffs, you have to be really good in the half court offense. So almost slowing them down to get better in the half court would have a better long term impact than the short term goal of winning, which would be playing faster. So this is a, such a contradiction. It's such a challenge. Right. And that's why I guess we have so much fun as fans and coaches on the outside evaluating it. But, you know, Long term, certainly half court offense, ball screen, cutting, ball movement, and positional emphasis on defense. And you reference defense. I would probably say more emphasis on positional, you know, positional play rather than switching. And and certainly being aggressive at points, but we know that being aggressive in the playoffs generally is not the way. Um, maybe they can flip the script and get a whole roster that can be aggressive throughout the playoffs. But you know, that long-term focus versus short-term play faster you know, ball movement and drivers type of thing. So, you know, it's such a challenge, isn't it? When you think about that and the complexity of those decisions, but I know Co- coach Casey and, and Troy Weaver, they're, they're evaluating these things on a day-to-day basis. 
And, and I'm guessing that they're trying a few things. So first off, I'm having an absolute blast. Like uh, part of me just wants to sit here and listen. And then I have to remind myself that I have to talk and, and engage in the conversation as well. But it's because it's just, it, I'm soaking it all in. But you brought up the transition half court because I've thought about this and I've, I'm sure people will go find tweets where I'm begging them to play faster. But in the back of my head, I'm like, are they playing slow at the beginning of the season because Troy or Dwayne Casey sees the long term of they're going to have to be able to play in the half court. These guys are going to have to learn to play in the half court. Like you said, to be successful in the playoffs, we've seen them start to play faster and they have been decent. Do you think that's because, and I'm asking pure speculation on this question, Chris, do you think that's because they had lost so many games? They're like, we really need to get some wins just to keep some morale and a culture here. Or do you think maybe the transition, these guys can be good enough. They see a future playing in transition because we've definitely seen them change the pace lately. So a few things. I, I agree with exactly what you're saying is that, so the, the pace increase is probably one they, they did want to try and compete more and get some wins. Uh, two, they went through a phase of playing half-court basketball to be able to, again, not just not just get those game experiences, but to get the video. Like imagine the video learning that comes from all these half-court repetitions that they got early in the year. So I somewhat speculate that there's a conscious process going on here, that this is deliberate and that this, is, this was an intentional thing to be able to drive development. And again, it contradicts a little bit the notion that we want to win now, you know, and that's fair because, again, at the end of the day, we know that this roster is not built to win right now. They need more. They need more. They need more. And that's part of it. So I, I do think that, that that's probably good speculation to be able to think that, you know, one, they wanted to increase opportunities to win. So they're going to play faster now because they've already gone through this spell of development at playing half-court basketball. And I'm bad at this, and people have told me I need to stop, but I'm asking kind of a two-fold question. Do you think it's important for Cade and Killian to be in a ball screen heavy offense to be successful, Cade Cunningham and Killian Hayes? Or if not, what kind of offense do you think Cade would thrive in? And I have a feeling the answer might be any offense because we've talked at length already about how just he, he can be successful in so many ways. But is, is the ball screen, is that, should that be priority number one? And do you have to be good at a ball screen? See, I'm asking multiple questions. I'm so sorry, Chris. But do, <laughs> do you have to be successful at ball screen offense to be successful in the NBA? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so here's, here's – if you want to look at offense, really, I mean, there's two ways, two ways to do what you need to do on offense. And that, need, and that is you need to draw two. And when we say you need to draw two, you need to draw two defenders. So a player needs to beat their check and score. Well, if they can't score, it's because they drew two players. They drew, drew a help defender. And one of the most effective – well, the most effective way to do that in the modern game is, is clearly the drive. You know, to be able to beat your player, drive, make decisions versus the second line of help. So you're driving and kicking or driving and making decisions in terms of uh, your opportunities in, in the paint and getting into the paint. And I think the Pistons are doing a much better job of that lately. And uh, I'm imagining the numbers bear that out. But the other way is obviously ball screen. And that is the easiest way and the most effective way. And look, all these coaches and all these staffs, I mean, in the NBA, I mean, it's it's I mean, they're incredible resource resources available to them, but they're just such smart, bright minds. And they know this. And I, I just look at it from that perspective that go all every team runs an incredible amount of ball screen. And the reason they do is because it works because it draws two, 
And then there's decisions based on that. Okay, if I draw an extra defender, who's open? The challenge for the Pistons, I think, in ball screen, and and I'll I'll go to a different, maybe not answer your second question, so feel free to ask it if I don't again. But uh, look, they need more reps at ball screen to be able to get better at ball screen. But the other thing they need to do is they need to get more passes to the rollers. You know, and I think that bears in the numbers that the rollers, you know, more pick and roll, uh, but not just for the ball handler, but to get the ball to the roll man like Sadiq, Olenek, Lyles, because their numbers are really good. And if you look at Sadiq Bay on Synergy, I mean, I, I, he's one of the few players that shows out as a very good, you know, in terms of, you know, I think it's 6.7% of possessions for him. He's a roll man, you know, but he's averaging 1.267 points per possession. So that to me gives us another role. So we want to get a playmaker in the role spot. I think too often we think of a roller as someone who, okay, roll and can make a play at the rim. Well, how about roll and can make that next pass? And that's a part of it as well. So to get that pick and roll and draw two is such an essential part of modern basketball. And then the other part of modern basketball is clearly about spacing. And probably a second part of your question will be, is Isaiah Stewart the potential role man? And, you know, I think that's been a challenge, right? And you you talk about drop off. You know, you talk about drop off, but I, I just don't think he's a very good role man right now. And he's probably better in a space and spot up type of role. And that's where some of his shooting, you know, when people have been worried about his shooting, you know, certainly are justified somewhat. Um, you know, whereas they should be running more pick and roll probably with Sadiq Bey as a role man. That's interesting. I I like that role. And I think that we're starting to see Sadiq transition to a little bit more of a four man than a three man that he played last season. And we won't get into it right now, but I think that's why, you know, there's even more talk about the Jeremy Grant trade. Um, But we'll save that for another one because I want to stay in these X's and O's. You brought up Isaiah Stewart. Hey, Bryce, just before we go there, can you know you brought up something interesting there about him being a three or a four. But if you look at a lot of the teams right now in the NBA, this is a trend in the NBA, like LeBron, uh, Caruso, even with the Bulls. And there's probably a great example because he's not necessarily as talented as Sadiq in terms of an offensive player. But they use him a lot in pick and roll to get him as the role man because he's a okay. great decision maker. So it's just an interesting thing. This debate about a three and a four may become mute at some point. Well, former Piston Bruce Brown, right? Like the Nets oh, used him in that way, correct? Tremendous. You know, and, and he's probably a little, well, he's a lot better finisher at the rim probably than Zeke. But, you know, that's something that can develop over time. But, uh, you know, right now the numbers bear it out that, you know, he's pretty effective in that place. Well, that's I've asked about Hamadou Diallo in that role too, just because the athleticism, obviously, with Hamadou, I think he can finish better at the rim. I know some people question his passing, but I think he's another guy. I know he's a little on the shorter side, but he's another guy that I, I wouldn't mind seeing utilized in that way. Well, you're a high school coach, so you know this. Against zones, you know, it yep, stereotypically yep. used to be, hey, put your big man in the high post, but no, no, nope. no. Put your best passer, put your best playmaker in the high post. Same thing as a role man. So, you know, you're right. And and again, maybe for Dial, it's it's a year away because this year is focused on this and getting him more comfortable in this role. But that's where we say that this development process is not linear. You know, it, it, we're going to see where he's at and we'll evaluate and then say, okay, maybe you can handle this now. I, I love that you brought up the zone thing because it is, it's, it's quick sidebar. Like I, I used to coach with my dad and he, he's an old school, old head, and he's a very smart basketball mind. Um, but he always, you know, you got to put your big, no, we don't want to put our big guy in there that can't catch and face up and make a pass. Let's put our best player in there that can catch and, and, and survey the floor and, and, and get it to the open teammate. And I do think that that idea of who you put it against the middle of a zone has changed and it, it makes so much sense. But I want to go back to the role guy. And 
And, and like you say, because it does fit. And you talked about Isaiah Stewart struggling a little bit. What is it that that is hard for a role man um, that they struggle? Why why does Isaiah Stewart struggle in that situation? Is it just having to make those quick decisions, understanding where the defense is rotating, catching and making plays on the move? What What is it in your experience that makes a role guy unsuccessful in that spot? I'm not sure there's another part in the game of basketball on offense that is more challenging than catching the ball in less space and having to make a decision based on whether you have enough space to shoot or drive or you need to pass it quickly. And, you know, we talk about zero seconds as a part of our basketball immersion. And, you know, we talk about that with all of our clients and our members. You know, zero seconds basically implies that we want you to perceive the decision before you make it, obviously, because any type of skill application comes down to you perceive it, then you make a decision based on what you perceive, and then you execute the skill. So the defensive goal is always to control the first second on the catch. So if a defender is there to control the first second on of the catch, you have to make a decision quicker than that. So think about the complexity of that when you're thinking about the role man. Now, all of a sudden, you have less space to make that decision as opposed to if I drive and kick out to a perimeter player on the three-point line and now they're attacking a closeout, they have much more space to be able to make that decision. So it's just a more complex situation. So I'm imagining a guy like Isaiah Stewart. He's just, again, it's just, he's just not used to making that decision in zero seconds. It's just not there yet, you know, and if he gets it and gets it figured out, then obviously he has the skills and the talent to be able to execute that. Um, And, you know, for people that really want to study this, go back and watch old Tim Duncan footage, you know, when he's a role man. And there's, I'm sure there's tons of YouTube video, but we used to call it a Tim Duncan which is basically the ball handler. As soon as you draw two and you can get it to the roll man, get it to the roll man as early as you can. And it doesn't matter if it's low, it doesn't matter if it's high, just get it to them because they'll draw an extra defender in rotation. And then that becomes the shoot driver pass decision, which is so complex. And there's probably no one better at attacking the weak side as a roll man than a Tim Duncan. So those type of things are really complex. And I know we try and simplify them. Oh, you caught it and you're in space. But you know that really has to happen in less than one second. So could the Pistons ball handlers actually do a better, and I know you haven't broke them down, but is it possible then that maybe Cade, Killian, and those guys are not doing a good job of getting the ball to the role guys early enough, and maybe that's some of the issues for Isaiah Stewart and company in terms of making those decisions? It is a big issue, in my opinion. And that's one of the reasons that, uh, you know, if you look at synergy or you look at different types of, uh, you know, advanced stats, I mean, the Pistons really struggle in ball in uh, pick and roll ball handling. Um, they're rated poor and they're averaging less than 0.7 per possession. Anything above one is obviously excellent. So they're really poor, you know, as the pick and roll ball handlers. And, and a lot of that comes back to not just scoring, but it comes back to decision making. And, uh, you know, in getting ready for this, I certainly watched more Pistons uh, play and certainly isolated some of the ball handlers. And, you know, watch for different things and watch for how often they get pushed off the screen. Watch for how often they take an extra dribble when they draw two instead of moving it as fast as possible. As soon as you draw or you sense that second defender, you got to move it. And I think a lot of teams are using a little bit more aggressive coverages. I mean, I could be wrong on that, but just from watching it, you know, to try and, you know, to try and, again, affect you know, they're ball handlers in a way where, you know, a drop coverage might give them a little bit more space and a little bit more freedom, but I think teams are being a little bit more aggressive. So another challenge for young players is just, again, figuring out that, 
I mean, that's just, again, another complexity that uh, will take time. But I'm imagining, again, coming back to what we were guessing on, we're guessing that they're running a lot more half court and they probably need to run more ball screen to be able to develop their players. Yeah, the the Heat were the team that I really recall that just they they trapped Cade every single time. It was actually in a win for the Pistons, but they were trapping him every single possession. I'm sure they they had got trapped before that game, but that one was where it seemed like all game long they were trapping him, and he actually did a good job. He, he didn't get very many field goal attempts, but he kind of got the ball where it needed to go, and, and you saw they got a, a pretty good flow in that game, and I think they're getting more comfortable with it. And I just – I want to say – I know we're already 40 minutes in, but like – Coach Oliver, Chris Oliver, you, his preparation for this guys for those was unbelievable. He was on the outline all the time. I could see it, and you know, talking beforehand about all the work. Like I appreciate it so much. And not that all of our guests aren't amazing, but it was incredible the amount of time and prep he put into this. And I, it's playing out in real time now as we do this episode because we're going to end up skipping over Sheet or Sham because <laughs> and, and Wes Wes approved it. I want everybody to know, Chris. Yeah. I want you to know, Wes is okay with it. It was actually his idea because this stuff is too good to not get into another 15 more minutes of it well thank you i'm happy to come back by the way as well i i I was gonna i was gonna ask chris because we're not (laughs) we're only gonna get into about half of it and i definitely want to have you back this is um, incredible stuff bryce i don't want to take over but can i just add one other thing because this was the most surprising thing um i was very fortunate some nba assistants share their scouting report with me on the pistons absolutely yes please One of the most interesting things, and I love this because I used to do this as a coach to certain players, is because Kate Cunningham doesn't necessarily have this blow-by speed, so teams are playing up on him earlier than you would see them play against other point guards or other players bringing up the ball. So it makes it harder for him to drive it, but it also makes him harder on ball screen to be able to get to the shoulder, as we said, but also his ball screens are happening a little bit higher then maybe the coaching staff would want because of that as well, because he's not able to get as deep into comfort zones to be able to run a ball screen where it puts as much pressure on the defense. And some of those subtleties and those nuances are just, again, like it's going to happen. So people have to be patient and he'll get that figured out and he'll learn how to deal with it. But I thought that was a really, really cagey thing of an opponent to be able to think about and be able to do. So what, what is the answer? What what does Cade have to get better at to counter that? Is it, being able to go by guys, which I actually personally think he's done better than I expected, Chris, you know, with all the talk about how, you know, unathletic he was, or maybe the foot speed or whatever. I think he's gotten by people better than I anticipated. And, and you know, then that could back him up a little bit, or does he have to get the, like, turn his back, back him down to the line of the screen? What, what does he have to do to then counter that to what teams are doing to him? Well, first off, let's talk about getting by people. You need space for speed. And that's one of the challenges. If you think about covering Giannis, you know, especially a few years ago, you know, a lot of people would say, well, don't cover him, you know, play off of him because he can't shoot the three. Well, the problem is then you're giving him space to build up speed. And it's almost impossible to cover a player like Giannis when he has space to build up speed. So I think what opponents are thinking, again, with Cunningham is if we we jam him, we play tight to him, he doesn't have any space to build up speed. Now, you might think Cunningham's not athletic or whatever. But speed is not based on athleticism. It's based on change of pace more than anything. So I think where you'll see his development, especially in these situations, is one, getting to space a little bit faster. So finding the right space. And then secondly, being able to create space to build build up his speed. And his change of pace, I think, is really effective. And I think that's why you're seeing him be able to beat people where maybe you might think, oh, he's not really athletic. He's not really fast. But 
He really is because he's tremendous with change of pace. And again, throwing back old names, if you think about like, you know, a Jason Kidd or a Steve Nash or stuff like that, they may not have been the most athletic, but they, man, they knew how to change pace and get to their space. So let's go to the other side of the ball screen and talk about a coverage, drop coverage. And I'm just interested because as the listeners may know, and and you may know this, you know, I try to do film breakdowns and break things down in the NBA. And and I'm kind of new to the NBA, NBA game. You know, I've been a high school coach. I played college basketball at the highest level, but the NBA game is a little bit different. And the ball screen was never a huge part of my playing career. It's never been honestly a huge part of my coaching career. So even on the defensive side, I've never had to come up with the whole lot other than just you know switch it maybe some hard hedges what is the ultimate goal of a drop coverage for for you if your team was running drop coverage chris what would be the perfect outcome you know possession after possession like obviously a turnover would be ideal but like you know if you could get it a realistic outcome what what is the goal what is the outcome that the defense is looking for in drop coverage well First of all, Bryce, I watched some of your breakdowns. Great effort, man. I, I love what you're doing. Uh, really good stuff. Uh, it was really great, and I hope fans check it out. Um, the, the general rule for all defense, you know, you can simplify it and say to not let the other team score, but realistically, it's to contest every shot. So if you contest every shot, they're still going to make shots. Like we know that there's no team that's going to shut out another team. So contesting shots. So if you really want to evaluate your defense, see how many contested shots that uh, that you're forcing. Uh, and then that is the goal of drop coverage. You know, a contested mid range is what potentially they want to give up. And we know the analytics, you know, you know, three and at the rim. Uh, great. We don't want to give up those. You know, we want to give up the mid range, but we don't want to just give up a mid range shot. We want to give up a contested mid range shot. And as we already talked about, there's less space in the mid range as you get closer to the basket. More players become more compact. So it's much harder to get an open shot. So that's the goal. But I want to fans to and and people that study the game a little bit to think a little bit more beyond that and think about the other advantage potentially of a drop coverage is to be able to force or direct the ball at an angle away from the basket. So it makes it easier for the side of the help defense that the ball is coming towards to be able to recover to their checks and not give up open three-point shots or to be able to contest three-point shots. You know, because the gravity on the floor is all about how far your help is away from the ball. And you know, if you put four great shooters on the floor around the three point line and one really good ball handler, you know, that creates a lot of gravity where a help defender, whether they're one or two passes away, has to stay closer to their check. So if you want to think about drop coverage, the ultimate goal is contested mid range or to be able to push the ball closer to help side. And going even more complex, if I'm allowed to, is pushing it ideally towards the two side. So in every every NBA court, we think about one side and a two side. And that's basically how all teams are playing, whether they're playing five out or they're playing four out. At some point, it becomes, you know, whether pick and roll especially, it becomes two players on a side and one player on the other side. So ideally, we want to force it to the two side because there's less space for the offense. No, that makes perfect sense. And I think a lot of fans will know what you're talking about whenever you say that. And so, that you know, I really kind of think about this question whenever I'm breaking down Luca Garza on the defensive end. You know, it's a, the defensive end for Luca Garza gets talked about a lot, and I think rightfully so. And he's been a very intriguing 
piece to the puzzle for this Pistons organization. And he's really kind of endeared himself to fans. And so for a guy like Luca, who's not really going to protect the rim great because he doesn't have great elevation, he does have heavy feet in drop coverage. And we've seen him trap a little bit more recently, but in drop coverage, what does a guy, what's going through Luca's head? to have a successful possession? What does he have to do from start when the, his man's going to screen to the contest or the the end, re, the end of the play? What, what's going through his head? What's a really good possession for Luca Garza? Well, again, back to some of the shot quality stats I gave you earlier, the lack of rim protectors is, is obviously a huge factor for the Pistons. I mean, they're 24th in quality of shots around the rim. Um, so, you know, they're, they're basically just not doing a great job protecting the rim. So, when you think about Garza or you think about these other, other players, you, you can't think of that. You're not going to change his ability necessarily to protect the rim that much, but you can change his position. And positionally, you know, even in drop coverage, you can change where the drop defender, the player covering the screener, is located. So he might have to play a little bit higher. And I think that's going to be the challenge for him is developing that ability to be able to contain the ball a little bit closer to the point of the screen rather than being able to cover the ball and protect the ball as it gets closer to the basket. And so much of drop coverage is not at the point of the screen, but rather the recovery angle of the player covering the handler to be able to get back in front of the ball to release the big. So we can look at this as a Garza problem or you know, as a Stewart problem or whoever's the drop defender, but truthfully, a lot of it comes back to the effort and the recovery angle of the player covering the handler. Because the quicker they can get back to square, the quicker they can back, get back to recovery, the quicker the player covering the screener can get back to their position as well and not be caught in a situation where they have to challenge a shot at the rim. No, that's great. I think I love this. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking about, and Wes actually just commented to me that we're going to watch the game completely different tomorrow. You know, you, I think we always like to blame the bigs offensively and defensively in these ball screen situations. And I think when, or it'll be when tonight, whenever this drops, but Wednesday night and going forward, I think I'm going to watch the guards a little bit closer in what they're able to do offensively, getting the ball early to the big, defensively getting around these screens. And so this is some really, really good stuff. And we only have about five, maybe 10. We might be able to squeeze 10 minutes. So I have a couple of questions I really want to get to. I want to know, Chris, who are some of your favorite or the best X and O guys? And let's just start in the NBA and you can just give me one. But just watching a professional basketball game, if you wanted to watch for the X's and O's of the game, schematics, maybe it's scouting, whatever it is, offensively or defensively, is there someone you just really, really enjoy the technical side of the game? Wow. I mean, so many. I mean, I'm so grateful for uh, Twitter and basketball Twitter particularly. I mean, I, I mean, the intelligence level of all of us as coaches or fans is just next level nowadays, isn't it? And, and that applies to players as well, by the way. I mean, the intelligence level of players is just next level because the access to video, the access to all these resources, analytics, etc. Um, you know, for me, the NBA starts with Coach Nick at B-Ball Breakdown. I mean, again, you know, whatever you want to think about him. I mean, he's a good friend of mine, but, uh, you know, I just think he looks at the game a little bit differently and he presents it in a way that's so fun and engaging that you can really, really heighten your intelligence in terms of that. And then, you know, beyond that, I'll be honest. I mean, there's a lot of kind of multi-skilled guys that are sharing the game online. Uh, Francisco Nanny, um, for example, um, and I, I mean, I can share it with you for the notes so c- people can find them, but he shares a lot of Europe stuff, but he's sharing a lot of European stuff as well as NBA stuff, college stuff, example, uh, where it's just kind of like thinking about things a little bit differently because suddenly when you're getting a European guy 
sharing ideas about what they see in the NBA. They're looking at it sometimes a little bit differently because obviously games, the FIBA game especially, is just a little bit different game. So him and Zach Bovere, uh from Pick and Pop does a great job. Um, you know, and there's such a long list. Alex Sarama, who uh, works with me at Basketball Immersion, is just tremendous for all everyone to follow at Alex J. Sarama, S-A-R-A-M-A. And uh, follow him because if you want to learn the game, you can learn how to teach the game better, how to think the game better. And, uh, you know, Alex does such a great job. He's coaching a prep school in Italy right now and sharing a lot of stuff that they do. So just a deeper dive in terms of understanding the game helps us all be better as coaches and fans. So you just brought up the term analytics. You said it a couple of times. And and I honestly don't know for sure with you, Coach. Um, are you a huge analytics guy? Um, you know, advanced stats, those like would you consider yourself more of a, a analytics a more of a eye test or a combination of both you know wh- where do you land on that and are there any advanced stats that you're like I really really trust these when evaluating a player I know you've referenced synergy a couple times as well <laughs> yeah I'm synergy I don't have access to second spectrum and a lot of the stuff that's next level for the NBA but uh okay well here's the thing I, I mean yes I'm an analytics guy I love analytics but I'm not smart enough yet really to be at that level, to be able to say I'm an analytics guy. And, uh, you know, the investment in time and energy. And if I went back to coaching, I would have to do that. Or I would have to, and this is more likely what I would do, I would hire someone that knows it inside and out and that can help me understand. Because it's not just the analytics and understanding the number. If you want to think about something, you know, and say one of my favorite, well, generally my favorite stats are frequency rates. Let's say frequency rates, the free throw rate, percentage of possessions that resulted in a free throw. You know, you think about something like that and go, okay, well, at at a really simple level, it's like how many free throws did we shoot per, you know, per possession? So it's not just the analytic number. It's how does that drive my decisions as a coach? Okay, if our number was high or our number was low over a course of games, what is the adjustment? What is the intervention to be able to change that or push it in the direction I want? And I think that's where probably I'm more aligned is to be able to have you know, the analytics and then be able to think practically about how that number drives the decisions that we make as a coaching staff and how it impacts our players, not just in terms of how we play, but also in terms of their individual development. So I have one final question. I know I'm kind of all over the place right here. You know, you as a trainer and how do you train the game into live situations? So here's my motivation for this question, being completely transparent. Coached a kid last year, and he was one of those. He he watched all the YouTube videos and, you know, bought, bought some of the different things. And and he was like a drill king. Like you'd take him to the gym and you would have thought he was the, you know, and then he just said, he was a great kid. And don't get me wrong. I understand you have to spend time in the gym and those things are good. I'm, I really don't mean to like bash that, but it was, he had a hard time transitioning it into five on five situations. What have you experienced that with kids? And is there anything you do to take what you train to make it transition smoothly into those five on five game and live situations? Bryce, you couldn't have asked a better question because this is exactly what basketballmersion.com is all about. And, you know, our members throughout the world, you know, why they join is for that exact answer. And look, we're not perfect. We don't have every answer. But where we would challenge people to think in terms of the question that you raised there is, look, you can be as good as you want at individual skills or what we'd call on-air skills. On-air skills means you're doing things without a defender. The problem is the game is played with a defender. 
So as good as you are ball handling, dribbling, you know, whatever it may be on your own, at some point you have to apply that in a game situation. And we can't separate skills and decisions. And I think that's a mistake that too many trainers, too many coaches, too many people in general make is that they disconnect those two things and they focus on building skill, 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 skill. And then they put themselves in a game or put themselves in a game situation. And now all of a sudden they can't use those skills because they can't make the decision. And I already outlined it for you. The decision happens before the skill application. We said perception, decision, skill application, and then feedback on what happened. Well, in that scenario, and in traditional teaching, a lot of times we teach the skill first. Well, the problem is you can't <laughs> you can't play the game <laughs> yeah. without decisions. And, uh, you know, those are the things. So I would just encourage so many people. I mean, you can take we have so many free resources available on Basketball Immersion on our YouTube page and everywhere else. But to dive deeper into it, it's just more offense versus defense, more live development, what you'd call a games approach to coaching more basketball decision training. And you can search that on our YouTube page as well and learn all about it. But that's the idea is that this player got so good on air, but then couldn't apply it because he couldn't connect the decision to the skill. Man, I I, I don't want to end it, but I'm going to, I'm just going to cut it off right now and not push through. Cause I'll just keep asking one more question. One more question. I, I, we definitely, if you're willing, Chris, like to have to, for you to come back, like that would be huge. I would have so much fun. I had a blast. Like I said, I, I kind of wanted just to sit here and listen and just ask a quick question and let you go. Um, I know Wes had a blast. I'm sorry for the listeners. We'll bring Sheeter Sham back next week with Matt, but Chris, thank you so much. Um, definitely want to have you back and, and just another chance here. Let people know where they can find you, everything you're doing, all the amazing stuff and the resources that you have out there. Well, thank you so much, Bryce and Wes. Uh, just a pleasure to be able to talk to you guys and love to come back. And uh, just for anyone, uh, follow me on Twitter at B-Ball Immersion and uh, go check out basketballimmersion.com. And, uh, you know, it's a membership community, uh, full year uh, immersion and uh, learning how to teach the game. I mean, certainly we present what to teach, but most of our focus is on how to teach and how to be able to, as we already alluded to, connect decisions and skills and be able to make the uh, experience uh, better for the player. And I think that's a huge part of modern coaching too, is to be able to just focus on athlete satisfaction and improving their experience overall. And, uh, you know, and that is a positive that we're moving into that direction. So uh, the other part is the basketball podcast. Uh, I'm, I certainly understand the podcast business just like you do. And it's just so much fun to be able to share and be able to talk to people. So I'm grateful for that. But the basketball podcast, we just had George Carl on last week and had a great discussion with him. And you can find that at basketballimmersion.com. There's a link right to the basketball podcast. That's the easiest place or on Twitter at B-Ball Immersion. So guys, make sure you go check out all that. I visited the website. I listened to some of the, the podcasts and I follow uh, Chris on Twitter and see all of his stuff and interact. And I, I throw my stuff, at, my content at him sometimes just to see if what he thinks and get some feedback. So make sure you follow, listen to the podcast, check out the website. And thanks to Chris again for joining Motor City Hoops today. As I always do, I want to thank the producer of the Motor City Hoops podcast, Wes Davenport. Wes, I'm sorry that we didn't get Sheed or Sham, but thank you for everything you do. 
You guys only get the chance to hear him when we do play that, but his contribution goes far beyond just the game. He makes the outlines, keeps editing notes, and helps me with the direction of Motor City Hoops. I also want to thank all the listeners, followers, subscribers, and everyone else supporting Motor City Hoops. I've said it before, but we've already gone above and beyond what I could have imagined, and with your support, we are motivated to keep going. Motor City Hoops will be back Thursday night or Friday morning with an instant recap episode, depending on when you want to listen, after the game versus the Grizzlies, and then back to our weekly drop on Tuesday morning next week with the aforementioned Matt Issa. We hope you will join us then. Thank you. Go Pistons and talk to you soon. Oh,